ask you if you could please, uh, if you're able, please stand with me uh, in reference for the word of our Lord. Again, if you're not able, this is a rather lengthy passage, um, but um, uh, but we're going to be reading the, the Stephen's sermon in, uh, in Acts um, chapter 7. I'm going to actually cut it off at, at verse 50, so it'll be um, Acts 7, 1 to 50. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and after that his father died. God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave and afflict them, who would, in, um, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his affliction. He gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his brother and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had, brought, had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But at the as the time of the promise grew near, which God granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, and there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race, and forced our fathers to expose their infants, so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was brought, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in Pharaoh's in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now in forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us, 
Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what has become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of, works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness of the house of Israel? O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan and images that you made to worship, but I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had sent the witness, sorry, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua and they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before their fathers. So it was until the time of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand Make all these things. This is the word of the Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for our sanctification and for his glory. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for this sermon. For this sermon that that testifies of your work in and through your chosen vessels to bring redemption to your people. And we praise you, Lord, that all of, of these chosen ones point to the true and righteous chosen one, Jesus Christ, the only Savior, the Redeemer of all your people. We praise you, Lord, for the ways that this message points to Christ. We thank you for for the ways that this message points to your faithfulness to your people despite the rejection at the hands of others. We pray, Almighty God, that you will help all of us to look to and to see Christ. And Lord, that you would help us see Christ not only in this sermon, but in all of our lives. As we consider the redemption history of Israel, may you help us to see that that we have a a part, that we are, are playing a role in redemption history to this day. For Almighty God, you have redeemed us powerfully from our sin by your anointed one, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Although many in the world, the vast majority in the world, reject him. And many will reject us because of him. Help us, Lord, again. In the power of your Spirit, strengthen us to follow in the footsteps of Stephen as he followed in the footsteps of Christ. Help us, Lord, to look to you. Help us, Lord, to know that we walk with you wherever we are and whatever circumstances your providence brings into our lives, that we trust that you are at work in and through them. Lord, that you have promised that you work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your your purpose. And Lord, we praise you and we testify, Almighty God, that we love you through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Cause us to grow in the knowledge of the fact that we dwell before your face and may our lives be different no matter what we experience may be different because of the fact that you are with us and we know that you are with us. Testify these things to us through your spirit. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning we come to part two of Stephen's witness. That ru- This is the passage that runs all the way from, from Acts chapter 6 verse 8 all the way down to chapter 8 verse 3. This morning we'll be looking again at, at just at verses at 7, 1 to 50. Now remember that we looked at last week that the charges were brought against Stephen by those of the Hellenist synagogue, the, the charges of blaspheming Moses and blaspheming God. And, and these were very, very serious charges. And these were charges that under the Old Covenant brought the death penalty. These men accused Stephen of, of speaking against the law and of speaking against the temple. And both could cause them to be stoned to death. But Stephen had done neither. Stephen had neither blasphemed Moses nor blasphemed God. He he spoke the the truth about the law and the truth about the temple, about what they really mean, but, but he spoke 
very highly about Moses and God. He testified as to the ways that, that Jesus fulfilled the law and, and made the temple obsolete, showing that the true meaning and purpose of both the temple and the law. These Hellenist Jews seized him and dragged him before the Sanhedrin, the, the same men who had been behind the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to hear Stephen's testimony. As we discussed last week, Stephen here is not speaking primarily as a witness for his own defense, but as a, as a witness for Christ. He's here to bear witness for Christ. He bears witness for Christ not just in his words, but also in his actions. His is a witness in word and deed. He's showing himself to continue to be mighty in word and deed. This will be true all the way to his death. As the first martyr of the church, he follows in Christ's footsteps. Stephen answers both charges by giving his accusers a, a history lesson, a redemption history lesson. Stephen goes from Abraham to Joseph to Moses to Solomon, covering roughly a thousand years of Israel's history from 2000 to 1000 B.C. He also includes Amos' prophecy of Israel's exile to Assyria, which was fulfilled in 733 B.C. This sermon is by far the longest recorded sermon in Acts. And so this really says something in the book of Acts, which is a book full of sermons. Famous playwright George Bernard Shaw, in his preface to Androcles and the Lion, referred to Stephen, listen to this, he referred to Stephen as quite as a quite intolerable young speaker. And it says that he inflicted on the council a tedious sketch of the history of Israel, which they were presumably as well acquainted as he, and then reviled them in the most insulting terms as stiff-necked and uncircumcised. He continues, Finally, after boring and annoying them to the utmost bearable extremity, he looked up and declared that he saw the heavens open and Christ standing at the right hand of God. Shaw says this was too much, and they threw him out of the city and stoned him to death. Shaw actually excuses their wickedness, saying it is a severe way of suppressing a tactless and conceited bore. But it was pardonable, pardonable and human in comparison to the slaughter of poor Ananias and Sapphira. So you see what he's doing here. He's, he's exonerating the men who killed Stephen and seeking to condemn Almighty God for the, the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. Shaw sees Stephen's testimony as irrelevant to the charges before him and that and men like Shaw and others, they reveal their own ignorance and failure to understand God's word, failure to understand redemption history, and failure to understand the gospel. Again, the, the Jews accuse Stephen of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God and speaking, and speaking the form, sorry, in the form of speaking against the temple and speaking against the law. And Stephen answers the, the first charge by demonstrating through Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and Solomon that the presence of God is not confined to the temple. He answers the second by recounting the rejection of God's messengers by Israel. This culminates in the rejection of Jesus Christ that we'll look at next week by the men who are standing there before him. He levels a countercharge against them, proving that it is these men who are guilty of the very sin of which they are accusing them. It is they who have rejected God, not he. Furthermore, Stephen is not the one who is rejected by God. They are. God is with his people, but these people have rejected God. And then so to bring both threads together, Stephen demonstrates from Scripture that God is with his people wherever they are. But these people are not with God. So again, Shaw's criticisms really say more about him than they do Stephen. From the scornful tone of his comments, it appears as though he'd happily bend down with the others and pick up stones to hurl at Stephen. In fact, from other comments that he, he makes in the, in the same work, he would readily condemn Jesus Christ as well. Here's the rub. Stephen's testimony and the negative response from it, from his first hearers, as from later critics such as George Bernard Shaw, bear testimony as well. Testimony of their rebellion against Almighty God. 
Just as the Jews rejected Joseph and Moses and the prophets during the Old Testament period, the men standing before Stephen rejected Jesus. Men like George Bernard Shaw have been rejecting Jesus ever since. The rejection of the testimony of Jesus Christ is the rejection of God and the abandonment of the only hope of salvation. And contrary to Shaw's criticisms, this is an amazing sermon. It's hard to imagine that Stephen preached it completely impromptu. He presented it spontaneously with no time to sit down and organize his thoughts, let alone to take notes. And all before men who wanted him dead. And men who would, before his sermon reaches its end, would succeed in their wicked desires. Stephen is demonstrating, as we discussed last week, that the Holy Spirit is teaching him what to say, Luke 12, 12, and that Jesus Christ has given him a mouth and wisdom that his adversaries could not withstand or contradict. Luke, Luke 21, 15. So then, then let's dive in. There's really five main sections in Stephen's sermon. We're going to deal with the, fourth, the first four today. The Lord was with Abraham and his offspring, but the Egyptians rejected them. Verses 1 to 8. The, the patriarchs rejected Joseph, but the Lord was with him. Verses 9 to 16. The people rejected Moses, but the Lord was with him. Verses 17 to 41. The people rejected the Lord, and the Lord has rejected them. Verses 42 to 50. Again, Stephen's sermon shows us that God is with his people wherever they are, but that these people are not with God. So let's start with verses 1 to 8. The Lord was with Abraham and his offspring, but the Egyptians rejected them. Chapter 7 begins with the high priest. It was likely Caiaphas who presided over the trial, asking Stephen, are these things so? He wanted to hear Stephen's personal admission of whether the charges of blaspheming God and Moses of speaking against the temple and the law were indeed true. As we discussed last week, this trial was a, a travesty of justice with the, the same blind judges and the same false witnesses making the same false accusations that they had made against Jesus Christ. Stephen, for his part, responded cordially and respectfully. Even that's a testimony. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in, in, in Haran. Notice here that, that Stephen refers to Abraham as our father. In fact, throughout his testimony, Stephen is going to re repeat, repeatedly refer to, to the, the patriarchs and those who came before as our fathers, showing the connection between himself and his audience. That is right until the end. He, he's, point, he's pointing out that they share a mutual heritage, as we'll see next week, not a mutual destiny. They share a mutual heritage, but not a mutual destiny. Stephen here begins and ends with God's glory. He begins with a reference to the glory of God appearing to Abraham and then concludes, as we'll see next week, with the glory of God in heaven and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God in verses 55 and 56. He begins with Eternal life, he begins eternal life then with the glory, with the God of glory, as Stephen is welcomed into glory by the ascended and enthroned Jesus Christ. But this is getting ahead of me, like Ruth was earlier. Stephen puts God's work in the historical context of God's people. God's self-revelation to Abraham marks the beginning of the history of of Israel. You understand that, right? Like so Abraham was the first Jew. As God made a covenant with Abraham. And notice that God calls Abraham while Abraham is still in Mesopotamia, in the land of the Chaldeans, in, in what is now Iraq. This is recorded for us in, in Genesis chapter 12. And God called Abraham to leave his homeland and his people to go to the land he would show him. And so he went from from Mesopotamia to, to Haran in Padamaram, Padanaram, which is what, it, what is what is now southeastern Turkey. And so all of this took place outside of the promised land. 
God appeared to Abraham in a foreign land outside of the geographical boundaries of Israel, let alone from Jerusalem and from Mount Zion, the, the, the site of the, the Temple Mount. And the implication here is that God does not dwell in the temple, but is with his people wherever they are. In whatever circumstances they find themselves. It was only after this that God brought Abram, Abraham into Canaan, the promised land. God promised him a land and a progeny, but as yet he had neither. And it's interesting here that Stephen does not point out the fact that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He doesn't, doesn't focus on Abraham's faith, but on God's faithfulness. Again, even outside of the geographical boundaries of Israel. Again, the focus is on God's faithfulness, even though the circumstances for Abraham looked bleak. Again, Stephen's point is that God is faithful and is not limited to geographical Israel, but calls his people and is with his people wherever they are. Even in the promised land, Stephen continues, Abraham did not receive an inheritance. Again, the implication is that Abraham's inheritance is the true promised land. And Abraham knew it, for he sought a heavenly country. Hebrews eleven sixteen. 16. God did promise a physical inheritance, but God's promise was that it would fall to Abraham's offspring, when to this point again, he had no offspring. But before that would take place, before Abraham's offspring would enter into the promised land, they would live as sojourners in a foreign land and would be enslaved and afflicted for 400 years. As I say so often, don't judge the story by the middle. Abraham's offspring would be rejected by the Egyptians. But God was with his people and he would, he would judge the Egyptians and then bring his people into the promised land to worship him. God is faithful. In Genesis 17, circumcision was given as a seal of the covenant that Abraham and his offspring were purchased by God and belonged to God. This was this is to, a, a foreshadowing here of the charge that, that Stephen would bring against his accusers in verse 51, that they are uncircumcised of heart. This is tantamount to saying that, the, to, that Stephen's saying to his accusers that you are spiritually outside of God's people. You are not God's people. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to that next week. God is for his people, and God is against those who are against his people. This is the theme that, that run, runs through Stephen's entire sermon. Stephen is testifying that God is with his people, even though others reject him, even though reject them, even though their earthly circumstances look grim. Furthermore, Stephen is saying that he and other Christians are in line with devout Jews who had encountered God and had been chosen by God. The implication is that they are, as Ben Witherington explains, the logical heirs and successors of the stream of early, faithful, and righteous Jews. He's saying it is the Christians that are the inheritors of the promises to Abraham, not these men that were standing here making these accusations against Stephen, against these men who had crucified Christ. Stephen skips most of the details about Isaac and Jacob and then moves to discuss another key member of Abraham's offspring, his great, Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. This is the second phase. The, the patriarchs rejected Joseph, but the Lord was with him, verses 9 to 16. The narrative concerning Joseph and his brothers covers far more of Genesis than any other person. From Genesis 37 all the way to the end of the book in Genesis 50. And Stephen dives right into the rejection. The patriarchs, the other sons of Jacob, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, were jealous of Joseph's favor with Jacob and then sold him as a slave. And they now established the pattern that we'll see in the rest of Stephen's, Stephen's sermon, that of, of Israel rejecting God's chosen ones, but God's faithfulness throughout. Of Israel rejecting God's chosen ones, but God's faithfulness throughout. 
Joseph was brought to Egypt where he was unjustly cast into prison. Again, his circumstances look grim, but in verse 10, we see that God rescued him and gave him favor with Pharaoh who promoted Joseph from prisoner to prime minister. Even in Egypt, again, far from the promised land, God was with Joseph. Again, we're seeing that God is with the one that Israel has rejected. Although Joseph was rejected by his own people and living in horrific conditions and circumstances, God was faithful and God was with him. And then a devastating famine hit the entire region. And Joseph's father and his 11 brothers had no food, but but Joseph had prophesied this famine and wisely planned for it by stockpiling food. So Jacob sent Joseph's brothers to Egypt in order to purchase food. And at first, Joseph did not reveal his identity, but on a subsequent trip, he, he made himself known to his brothers. And then Joseph brought his family to Egypt and the lives were spared. So again, Joseph, despite being rejected by his brothers, became the instrument of their deliverance. What a beautiful and powerful example of God's faithfulness to restore the circumstances of the one who had been rejected. Even more so, what a a beautiful and powerful example of God's providence to preserve his people. Even though his brothers had rejected him and treated him horribly, God brought Joseph to Egypt ahead of them to spare their lives. As Joseph would say later to his brothers in in Genesis 50, 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so Stephen, again, is, is continuing the theme of his sermon, that Israel rejected God's chosen one, but God was with him, even as a slave, even as a prisoner in Egypt. Again, God is, not, God is not limited to the temple or to good times. God is with his people everywhere and in everything. So now with the next section, Stephen jumps ahead 320 years towards the end of the period of affliction and slavery that God had spoken to Abraham about. And again, he continues the theme of rejection by Israel, but God's faithfulness to be with his chosen one. Now it's Moses. Remember, Stephen's accusers had had charged him with blaspheming Moses, but notice here that he, he speaks very highly of Moses, devoting almost half of his sermon to a discussion of Moses and what happens to him, dividing his life into three 40-year blocks uh, as, as is in rabbinic teaching. And in each of these, we'll see that each of these seasons of, of Moses' life, God is with him, even though he's facing Again, horrific conditions and rejection. But God is with him all the way. So now we see the people rejected Moses, but God was with him. Verses 17 to 41. Stephen summarizes Exodus 1, where the people thrived in Egypt until a pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph or what Joseph had had done for Egypt. This pharaoh was cunning and tried to to cull the people of Israel by forcing them to expose their infants. But like the words pro-choice, the English word expose does not clearly communicate the wickedness of what was taking place here. All of these baby boys were to be thrown into the Nile River and drowned, and many of them would have been eaten by crocodiles. Again, we see the theme of the rejection of God's people, this time by the Egyptians, just as God had prophesied to Abraham. But we're told that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. Now, this does not refer to his appearance, but communicates that God's favor was upon him. And notice again where this took place. It's recounted for us in in Exodus 2. Moses was still in Egypt. Still a slave in Egypt, but the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him, even though he's outside of the promised land, even though he was a slave, the Lord was with him. He was hidden in his house for three months, and then his 
parents, while technically obeying Pharaoh's command to expose him, they put him and putting him in the Nile River, they they made a basket out of papyrus reeds and, and covered it with pitch and bitumen and put him in there and so he'd safely float down the river. And at God's providence, he floated right up to Pharaoh's daughter, who just so happened at that very moment to be bathing in the river. And so Pharaoh's daughter then adopted Moses and brought him up as her own son, even hiring Moses' own mother as a wet nurse to care for him in her own home. And Moses, as being now considered a child of Pharaoh's daughter, was instructed in the wisdom of Egypt and, we're told, was mighty in words and deeds. Later, in, in verse 36, Stephen will describe Moses as performing signs and wonders. Remember how Luke describes Stephen in similar terms in, in Acts 6.8. So now in the next phase of, of Moses' life at, the age, life at the age of 40, it, it was in Moses' heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And he went down amongst his people. He, he saw an Egyptian beating one of, of the Israelites. And so Moses struck down the Egyptian and buried his dead body in the sand. Well, verse 25 provides an important insight that is not recorded for us in Exodus 2. He supposed that his brothers would, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. They did not understand that Moses was God's chosen one to bring salvation from slavery in Egypt. Moses is clearly a type of Christ as he reflects Jesus Christ as God's chosen one to bring his people out of slavery to sin. And the lack of understanding is evident the next day when he saw two Israelites fighting. They tried to reconcile them, but the guilty party thrust Moses aside and replied, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? This this man is, ironically speaking, prophetically, God had made Moses a ruler and a judge over his people, but but Moses was rejected by his people. Again, Stephen highlights the theme of the rejection of God's chosen one by Israel. Also, like Christ, the people did not understand and rejected him. Realizing that his murder of the Egyptian the day before was exposed, Moses fled to Midian and lived there as an exile. After passing another 40 years, Stephen says that that an angel, it was the angel of the Lord, appeared to him in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. This is from Exodus 3. God appeared to Moses in a theophany in the burning bush and told him to remove his sandals for the place that he was standing on was holy ground. Again, consider the location. This was either the, the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt or across the Gulf of Aqaba in Saudi Arabia. I think that one's actually more likely. As Bach says, no place was too desolate for God's presence. The temple is not the only holy place where God shows himself holy. Again, we see that God is with his people outside of Israel and far from the temple mount. Israel had rejected Moses as the deliverer, but God was with him. God revealed himself to to Moses with a covenant name, I am. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And the, the Lord assured Moses that he had seen the affliction of his people and that he would deliver them through Moses. Again, Moses is a type that points to Christ. Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. The men of Israel had accused Stephen of rejecting Moses, but it was Israel who rejected Moses. Israel's rejection is typological as well. It points to the rejection of Christ by the Sanhedrin, the same men who were standing there accusing Stephen. 
We're told that empowered by the Lord, Moses performed many wonders and signs, the, the ten plagues, and parted the Red Sea and delivered Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness for 40 years, where, where the Lord continued to show his hand mighty through Moses in performing signs and wonders. Stephen here quotes Deuteronomy 18.15, also quoted by Peter in Acts 3.22, where Moses prophesied, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. God would raise up Jesus, a prophet like Moses, but many of them would reject him as well. Yet his people would hear his voice. His sheep would hear his voice. Stephen speaks of the living oracles that were delivered through Moses on Mount Sinai. It's a reference to the law. This is the same law that Stephen's accusers had said that he had spoken against. But again, it is Israel who had broken God's law. Again, we're told that Israel had rejected Moses, verse 39, thrusting him aside, much as the Israelite had thrust him aside in Egypt all those years ago. They turned back to Egypt and back to their idols, making the golden calf, bowing to worship it, rejoicing in the work of, my ha- of, of their hands. Israel rejected Moses again. Moreover, Israel rejected the Lord. Now we'll see that the Lord rejected them. Verses 42 to 50. The people have rejected the Lord, and the Lord has rejected them. Verse 42. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. So we're told here that that God rejected Israel, that God gave them over to what they wanted. He gave them over to their own idolatry to worship the host of heaven. This is a parallel with with Romans 1, 18 to 32, where God hands people over to their own wickedness. They rejected God. So God gives them over to the wickedness of their hearts to more and more and more shameful sin as we're seeing in our culture today. I believe our culture has been given over to its wickedness. But the Lord is preserving for himself a remnant, including many of us here in this room, to continue to shine the light of the gospel in the darkness of this world. Stephen quotes here the, the prophet Amos from Amos chapter 5. Again, Amos prophesied about 750 B.C. and the things that, that, that he prophesied took place less than 20 years later. Did, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Saying, you offered sacrifices, but they weren't to me, says the Almighty God. They made sacrifices, but not to the Lord. He says, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan and the images you made to worship it, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. This is referring to the Assyrian exile from from 733 BC. He's saying, God is saying, you rejected me, I'm rejecting you. I've given you over to idolatry and I've given you over to captivity. And notice here that the tomb, he says, "You, you worshiped in the tabernacle, but not to me. You made the tabernacle of witness. We'll talk about it in a minute. That you made, that, that's word, you took up the tent of Moloch. That's the tabernacle. You made the tabernacle the tent of Moloch. The wicked pagan god. And all the time claimed to be worshiping me. They had the tent of witness in the wilderness containing the Ark of the Covenant. The witness of the Lord's presence. Even there in the wilderness, the Lord had had given Moses instructions for the tabernacle specifications. And it looked right. But many of these Jews were were worshipping Moloch. And then they brought the, the tabernacle with them as they dispossessed the pagan nations of Canaan, even though they were pagans themselves. They dispossessed the the nations of Canaan from the promised land, even as is recorded for us in the book of Joshua. And so finally, the people of God have now begun to dwell in the promised land. Now Stephen jumps ahead again, this time 400 years from the time of Joshua to the time of David. David found favor in the sight of God, and and God requested from God to build the temple. This is in, in, uh, in 1 
Kings chapter 7. He requested to be able to build the temple as a dwelling place for God, but God said that that task would fall to his son Solomon. Now notice here, God was with David, but it was Solomon who would build the temple. But verse 48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Stephen here quotes Psalm 11. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did I, did not my hand make all these things? Now here it's, Stephen is, is not saying, nor is David in Psalm 11, that God isn't in the temple. What, what Stephen is, is saying here is that there's nowhere that God isn't. God is everywhere. It isn't that the temple wasn't important. It just did not have the importance that they had endued it with. Ben Witherington says that God can't be confined or controlled or manipulated by the building of a temple and by the rituals of the temple cultists or the power moves in the temple hierarchy. Including these men that were standing here accusing Stephen. Stephen had been accused of speaking of the temple's destruction by Jesus Christ. But as we talked about last week, Jesus was speaking of the destruction of the, of the temple initially in, in John chapter 2, that, that he was speaking of the temple of his body. Tear down this temple, in three days I'll raise it up again. But Jesus did speak of the destruction of the temple in Luke 19. This was fulfilled in AD 70 when, when Rome would destroy the temple in part of the destruction of much uh, of Israel. Again, it took place just as Jesus, Jesus had prophesied. Jesus had made the temple obsolete. And it fulfilled its purpose in pointing to him. And also in pointing to us. For we are now the temple the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts through Jesus Christ. But even here, even here, Stephen's accusers don't react. They, they claim to be offended by, by Stephen speaking against the temple. But next week we'll see what really offends them. We'll see what really, really makes them angry. Stephen here is building to a climax. It's their, their own scriptures have revealed the pattern of rejection. The rejection that these men are continuing. But the scriptures also revealed God's presence with his people wherever they were. And Stephen is testifying through, not just through his words, but, but through his actions, he's testifying that the Lord is present with him. And I want to jump ahead. And, and preach what happens next. You know, you've read the story. Read ahead yourself. But, but, but through all of this, we see that, that God is with Stephen. Through all of this, even as these people who claim to be with God were themselves rejecting God as, as their behavior had shown with Christ, as they would show in a moment with what they're going to do to Stephen. Again, Stephen's sermon shows us that God is with his people wherever they are. In any circumstance. But these people are not with God. We're not going to let him finish his sermon. We're not going to let him reach the climax. We know where it's going. And we know that, that even with what happens to him, his, he preaches in his death. God has promised that he would be with his people. The presence of God is, is a comfort to the people of God. Think of, of Psalm 139, Josh, Pastor Joshua's favorite sermon. I'm sure this has been a comfort to him, God's presence with him in this time. Psalm 139, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me, and light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light to you. This was a comfort to Stephen. This has been a comfort to the saints throughout redemption history. This continues to be a comfort to the saints. But for the enemies of God, the presence of God is a terror because the light of God reveals their wickedness. They hate the light and refuse to come to the light because of their deeds of wickedness. But God, they, they know in their hearts that one day all of their deeds are going to be exposed before Almighty God and will be testimonies A through Z an infinite number of times over demonstrating and proving their wickedness as they're cast into hell by the Almighty God that they have rejected. But for us, who are following in the footsteps of, of Abraham, following in the footsteps of Joseph and Moses and Stephen. The presence of God is our hope. It's our only hope. We know that, that one day that our deeds, our thoughts and words and actions will be broadcast for all to see. Everything you've ever done or said or thought will be plainly visible to all. But for the believer, these things do not serve as, as A through Z, infinite times over of your wickedness. They serve as testimonies, witness A through Z, infinite times over of God's grace upon you. As God reveals through his forgiveness and has welcomed you into heaven, he reveals his mercy to you in Jesus Christ. This was Abraham's hope and, 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 and Joseph's hope and, and Moses' hope and, and Stephen's hope. That through Jesus Christ, we can live in the presence of God and look forward to one day when we are, are with Jesus Christ forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Again, we'll see what happens next week to these men and to Stephen. Most of us already know. I encourage you to sit down and to read this, this in your, your family devotions, this, that whole passage. Do it several times this week and, and think about the trajectory. Again, this is all one passage from Acts 6, 8 all the way to 8, 3. This, this all goes together. Let's think ahead to the crescendo of the glory of Christ revealed and of Stephen being welcomed into the presence of Christ as all who trust in Christ will also be. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Are you looking to Christ for the forgiveness that can only be found in him? Is, is your hope on, in that day when Christ will welcome you into paradise. We hope and trust that that's true for Aaliyah. We hope that is, is true and pray that that is true for all of us. But you need to answer that question yourself. Or, or you need to ask, am I trusting in Christ? Are you trusting in Christ? In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. And this is a, an opportunity that, that we have to testify to say, yes, I am trusting in Christ. He is my only hope. I don't look to myself. I look to his life and his death and his resurrection. I look only to the forgiveness that I have received in him, to the grace and mercy that he has showered upon me, wicked though I am. My hope is in him to a crucified and risen and ascended Savior. This preaches. This preaches far better than I can preach. It even preaches far better than Stephen could preach. So as we 
Prepare our hearts to eat and drink of the Lord's table. Let us consider the testimony that we are bearing before each other and before, the, before all of the, the angels in heaven, before God himself, the testimony that we are bearing that we belong to Christ, that we are with Christ and that Christ is with us and one day we'll return to be, take us home to be with him forever. May that hope, may that promise affect the way you live today, the way you live this week. May, may God help us to go into this week confident, conscious of the fact that God is with us and we are with him in whatever circumstances we face. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for the wonder of the gospel that sinful men, sinful women can dwell in your presence. You are the holy God. We are unholy. We are still sinful. We still so easily fall into the sins that earned our just condemnation. But Lord, your grace is greater than our sin. Lord, we rest not in, in our faith, but in your faithfulness. Your, Lord, your faithfulness that you demonstrated to Abraham and to, to Joseph and to Moses and to Stephen. But God, the same faithfulness you demonstrated to the Lord Jesus Christ as you raised him from the dead on the third day. Demonstrating his glory, his vindication, as you brought him right to the very throne of God, where he now reigns and rules just as he always has. Lord, help Christ to reign and rule over the heart of every person who is hearing these words. May your spirit attend to these words with power, bringing repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.